Good afternoon and welcome to this book at lunchtime event on Charles Dickens and the properties of fiction, The Lodger World by Dr. Ushoshi Gupta. My name is Professor Wes Williams. I'm a professor of French and I'm also the director here at Torch, the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities. I'm delighted to welcome Ushoshi to speak about her book. Also on the panel today are Professor Sophia Psara and Professor Jeremy Tamling, who will be chairing the discussion. It's a great pleasure to be here, as I say, to introduce this, the third book at lunchtime of this term. Book at lunchtime, as regulars will know, is Torch's flagship event series, taking the form of fortnightly, more or less, bite-sized book discussions with a range of commentators. In our normal times, we'd also offer you something to eat, in other words, some lunch, but this time it's food for thought. Please do take a look at our website and newsletter for the full program of the rest of this term and next. The book under discussion today then, Charles Dickens and the Properties of Fiction. I'll just say one or two sentences about it and let others talk about it in much more detail for the rest of the discussion. What this book does is demonstrates that a cosy, secluded home life, a strong, if you like, protected sense of home, was beyond the reach of most Victorian Londoners. Exploring the significance of tenancy in Dickens' fiction allows readers to gain insights into the chaos and the unexpected harmony to be found in rented spaces. The loneliness, as well as the sociability, the interactions between ranges of cohabitants, the complex gender dynamics at play, and last but certainly not least, the vital relationship between space, buildings, and money. In a moment, I'll hand over to Professor Tambling, who will fully introduce the book and the rest of the panel. This will be followed by a brief reading by Dr. Dasgupta herself. Afterwards, our commentators will present their thoughts on the book, coming at it from their very different and distinct disciplines. Part of the point of these discussions is to kind of animate interdisciplinary debate. We will then give Ushoshi the chance to respond to some of the points raised before entering into what hopefully will be a fascinating discussion between all three and indeed you, the audience. I'll come back uh, at around quarter two uh, to pick up any questions that you'd like to put in the chat box or in the in the um, question function as we go along. They'll be passed through to me. I'll mediate them through to the speakers themselves. All that's left for me to do now then is to thank you all for coming and to briefly introduce our chair. Professor Jerry Tangling is a writer and critic who has been engaged with education and teaching literature, film, opera, and cultural studies in its richest and broadest sense at many levels and across the world. From among his many appointments from Hong Kong to Manchester and beyond. As a literary scholar, he makes tremendous sense of the insights of critical and cultural theory and has a long-term focus on the culture of cities and in particular, that of London. Professor Tambling's many publications include most recently, Dickens, Nicholas Nickleby, and The Dance of Death. It's hard to think of a better chair for our discussion today, so I shall disappear from the screens and hand over to you, Jeremy. Thank you. You need to unmute yourself before you uh, before I do. Thank you very much, Wes. That's a very uh, kind introduction, and it's a great pri privilege and pleasure to be here um, this afternoon. And I'd like to um, be able to welcome our, uh, our uh, 
uh, author, uh, Dr. Ushashi Dasgupta, wh whose book I've read with great pleasure. Uh, and by the way, I've actually managed to review it for the Dickensian. Um, uh, so, uh, 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 and I asked the reviewer, I asked the editor if I could take more space for it because it, it is an extraordinarily fascinating book. So he actually gave me double the word allowance. Uh, you, you'll be pleased to know. Uh, uh, this is a book which is uh, very insightful and, and uh, extraordinarily well-researched and beautifully produced. Uh, and I, I'm going to hold my fire on some comments after I've heard uh, what Dr. Dasgupta has to say. But uh, it's more than just lodging, it's about being in the world. Uh, and it's about being in the world from really the cradle as a kind of private space to the grave. Uh, from Andrew Marvell, we know that the grave is a fine and private place. But you actually have a wonderful illustration of, uh, from 1828 of the grave uh, of the coffin uh, as a uh, as a, a space to rent, and of course that reminds me of Hamlet, where, where the first grave digger talks about the, um, the the grave as the the houses that he makes last or doomsday. That's said about the grave digger. So uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what what you have to say. And our other panelist uh, is Professor Sophia Sara. I'm very much looking forward to hearing what she has to say um, because I deduce her interests are absolutely spot on for this for this afternoon and they're also very interesting to me as well personally. Uh, uh, um, professor Psara is, is a professor at UCL. She's a practicing architect and she writes about the intersections between architecture and narrative, architecture and literature, buildings and spaces and literature. Uh, and uh, uh, her work is very exciting and I'm looking forward to hearing how she's going to respond. Now, without more ado, I'll hand over to uh, Dr. Dasgupta and look forward to hearing what she's going to say. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, I am so delighted to be participating today. And I would like to begin by thanking Torch for the very kind invitation um, for putting all of this together. Um, and I would also like to thank the panelists, Sophia and Jeremy for taking the time to think about my work. So this is such a wonderful opportunity to uh, talk about Dickens and to meet people when all of us are so far apart. I'm grateful to OUP as well for making sure that the book could still come out in the middle of the pandemic. So thank you all for your support and for being here. What I'm going to do um, is I'm going to distill some of the ideas in the introduction to this book, um, just to set the conversation up. And the PowerPoint simply has a few quotes on it. When Dickens's much-loved brother-in-law, the sanitary engineer Henry Austin, died, Dickens took on the role of advisor to his sister, Letitia. Together, Dickens and Letitia weighed up a range of different options for her future. As Dickens took steps to arrange a government pension, 
The siblings went back and forth on the matter of Letitia's home. He encouraged her to leave the house that had witnessed her bereavement and to go into lodgings, counseling her about suitable neighborhoods, prudent budgets for the rent, the relative merits of furnished and unfurnished rooms, and the lengths of leases. Shorter leases, he said, were better in this case. Then you would not be bound to any course until you have had time for consideration and experience. The most striking letter relates to an idea of Letitia's, to turn landlady. Always supposing that she concurs, Dickens writes, I am not quite clear as yet about the idea of taking borders, and I will tell you why. I don't think your spirits are fit for it or that your nervous condition is equal to it, and those being unfit and unequal would inevitably lessen the chance of your getting young people to come to you. We must consider both what the pain would be to you and what the pain would be to them. And I think it would not do as yet for either side. But if you let a lodging, a small sitting room and a bedroom or the like, you would not have the same demand upon you. Similarly, the other person would then have no ground of unwillingness to come to you. And this is what I would recommend. And um, in the fullness of time, it should seem, if, it should, if in the fullness of, of time, it should seem feasible to develop the lodging into boarding, well and good. But I say most decidedly, don't think of taking borders now. Reading between the lines, it's clear that Letitia wishes to surround herself with young people to alleviate her grief, as well as for a more practical financial reason. And I wanted to start with this letter because it reveals just how central lodging was to domestic culture in this period. It reminds us that rented space was a plural rather than a monolithic entity. Dickens points out that taking a single lodger is less demanding than managing an entire boarding house. So um, a large scale enterprise where Letitia would be responsible for providing meals at table. Noting Letitia's current spirits and nervous condition, he contemplates the toll of such a serious venture on a landlady's well-being and, in turn, its impact on her borders. He's thinking about either side of the transaction, about the small new community Letitia proposes to create. Having offered his opinion on these plans, Dickens then invites Letitia to Gad's Hill, his home, for more immediate solace. You cannot begin to recover tone and force, he says, until you have had the benefit of change of place. So in these circumstances, mobility seems much healthier than attachment to place. Of course, um, Dickens was always more than happy to tell people what to do. And I suppose this moment is to some extent simply a case in point, um, but it also speaks to one of his central literary concerns. By this stage, he'd been inventing scenarios between imaginary lodgers and their landladies for over 20 years. Um, and as he begins to picture what Letitia's home might look like, he's clearly thinking as a novelist. Um, he's thinking about the ways in which people might come into contact and bounce off each other in a constricted space, participating in the kinds of interactions that are essential to narrative movement. Meanwhile, when he equates change of place with a renewal of tone and force, he may as well be discussing his own creative project. 
And that's what I explore in this book. Tenancy was a governing force in everyday life and it pulled upon Dickens's imagination. Broadly speaking, it's the leasing of real estate in exchange for money, which is paid in periodic installments. Tenants don't own their homes. Instead, they occupy rented property for a finite time under the authority of a landlord who is either present or absent, and uh, they're expected to abide by the rules of an agreement. This was one of the most widely and regularly performed economic transactions in the 19th century, and Dickens was an active participant in rental culture. Um, his novels are peppered with characters who are touched by the property market. The home passed through many hands. Tenancy encouraged and normalized certain living practices. It influenced the way the Victorians both conceived and negotiated their place in the world. And it brought particular spatial configurations into prominence. So was this really just a transaction completed mechanically by the vast majority of the population? Was it a necessary evil or something that could be celebrated? What happened when a contract between parties was played out by human actors who existed not in print, but in flesh and blood. Dickens's fiction offered um, a survival manual for a generation of renters who were unlikely to experience other modes of dwelling. But I don't think rented spaces is just a setting or a backdrop for Dickens. It can be a powerful agent in narrative. And his take on what he calls the lodger world is often extremely playful. And this in fact um, is my central argument in the book. For the property agent, Alfred Cox, change of residence was amongst the most troublesome of life's chances and changes. He writes, the incomer begins to discover that house hunting is but poor sport, that it is rather tedious, troublesome and expensive toil, attended by disheartening failures, irritating rebuffs, annoying contests with cupidity, exaggeration and deception, and consequently followed by disparagement of the world in general and of landlords in particular. So he rounds off by saying, the adventures of a gentleman in search of a home might, in the hands of a popular novelist, be turned to exquisitely ludicrous account. While Cox's own task here is with sober realities, Dickens is a popular novelist who does chronicle these adventures. Um, and that's what the book is about. Um, thanks very much. I'll now hand back over to Jeremy. Uh, I think the, the, the book raises an enormous number of very interesting questions and your uh, presentation brings some, some of them to the fore. I, I was very struck by checking in OED uh, uh, under the word to let uh, uh, this morning, how there are two citations OED gives from the 1830s to the idea of letting uh, accommodation. What one is from 1837 and, and has to do with the idea of uh, accommodation being let uh, just opposite Hyde Park, which obviously was very fashionable uh, and which therefore gave a kind of entree to a kind of snobbish um, middle class. Uh, and the other one was from 1839, where the reference was actually to Nicholas Nickleby. Nicholas Nickleby was being cited and, uh, and, and was 
for a poor part of the town which had given itself over to lodgings. So, uh, so there's the two aspects of, of Victorian life here, uh, um, becoming the uh, respectable bourgeois or sinking down into the world and becoming like the property uh, which is, uh, which is um, uh, uh, going down in the world you yourself are going down in the world and uh, and you have to uh, go into threadbare uh, rented accommodation it, it's a it's a very interesting topic and dickens seems to be catching uh, on the strength of those oed references i say i would say dickens is catching a whole new mood whereby people are coming into towns to work and to work as clerks uh, and we all know how important the Clark world is for Dickens. And I'll just make a very quick cross-reference to Bartleby, the Scrivener, the, the Melville text, which is so Dickensian in character. But to thinking about that, that Clark world, that, that there's the figure of the Clark who uh, has his evening meal uh, in, in the city and then goes home to his place in Islington. This is one of the sketches and sketches by Boz. And it raises so many interesting questions about the, the status of people who are unable to have any kind of independence, any kind of privacy, any kind of uh, sexual or marital relation, what happened in those circumstances, what were the absolute economics of that and how much money was left over and, and how did that uh, uh, limited income impact upon their ways of thinking. All of these are issues which you, you um, uh, Ushashi, have spotlighted and which Dickens has, ha, has brought to light and, I, and, and I'm absolutely fascinated by them and uh, it seems to me there's a whole new creation of a kind of petty bourgeois in Dickens's novels uh, and uh, very much work needs to be done on exploring all of that. I was also fascinated, these are just random thoughts, about, about the model houses that Dickens became very interested in, uh, uh, along with uh, Angela Burdett Coutts, who was of course the richest woman in Britain apart from Victoria, and who wanted uh, to set up uh, um, model housing in Bethnal Green. And you write about that very well. And it got me interested in the whole question of model housing. Uh, you, on, on your page 152, you, you have an illustration of the, uh, of the first model houses in London in, in 1850. And in fact, you maybe go around to look at them uh, because uh, I've, I've forgotten all about it. But, and it is very interesting, but it also implies that the word model becomes a new word uh, around about the time from 1846 uh, and through to the 1850s. And I, I was not just thinking about model homes, but I was thinking about Carlyle's essay on model prisons and how Dickens parodies that with model prisoners. I was thinking about hard times with the model school uh, uh, Mr. Gragrind has, that's 1854. And th there seems to be a very interesting pattern here of the emergence of the idea of the model. Uh, and on one side, I was connecting that with 
the, the idea of, of architectural plans being like a kind of anatomy uh, and, and a model in that sense. And we, we know how architectural plans gain a new force the, uh, in the second half of the 18th century. Uh, and I was also thinking about the idea of modeling a society. Well, people need homes, so they, and Dickens writes to Angela Burdett Coutts about what these homes should look like uh, in Bethnal Green. And he shows himself to be quite the architect. And that fascinated me too. And I remembered that in, 17, in 1849, so this is two years before that, Dickens had uh, um, read Ruskin's Seven Lamps of Architecture. Now, we might not think of Ruskin as the greatest expert on the forensic details of architecture, but, but nonetheless, Dickens's interest in reading Ruskin, uh, I think, is also uh, um, something to be explored. Uh, um, why did Dickens read Seven Lamps of Architecture? It, it's clearly something which is, is pointing to an interest in the architect, which is there, of course, with Mr. Pecksniff in, in uh, um, Martin Chuzzlewit, slightly earlier in the 1840s. Uh, and it's there when Joe Gargery comes to visit Pip in Great Expectations, and he's been looking at architectural drawings, and he calls them to architectural laurel. And the, the neologism is a wonderful one, of course, uh, and it, it's truly Baroque. <laughs> it reminds us of, of, of uh, the, the, the interest that, that uh, there is in, in uh, um, thinking self about building self-consciously, thinking not only about their function, but about their uh, or ornamentation. Uh, and uh, thinking about then this idea of the, the the lodger and the relationships between the lodger and the landlord or landlady, as, as it so often is, and the relationships between that and plot. And I, I thought the book was excellent in the way it negotiated some of the ways in which plot details uh, are set in motion by the relationship between the the uh, inhabitants of the house. Uh, um, I, I thought the section on Bleak House, uh, uh, where Mr. Crook uh, has the ground floor, and then the Mr. Nemo, who of course is Captain Horden, uh, who is a very important virtually offstage figure until he dies in chapter 10, but whose influence just permeates the novel. And then living above that, Miss Flight, um, the, 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 the mad woman who's needs to uh, be righted by the Court of Chancery and has been waiting all these years. The, the, putting those three figures together, uh, it's an astonishing instance on Dickens's part of, of, of um, cultural um, sensitivity and, and imagination. But I think your book also brings out beautifully how all that 
forwards the plot uh, and uh, or plots uh, and is rich in itself. Well, now I've, I've said quite enough at the moment. I, I'm going to hand over at this stage to uh, Dr. Uh, Sophia Sara and, and look forward to more. Sophia, you need to unmute. <coughs> uh, can we, yeah. Great, yep. Can you see the, my screen? We can. Oh, sorry. Thank you very much, uh, Jeremy, and thank you very much for inviting me in this interesting event. I read the uh, book uh, by Ushashi with great interest, and um, uh, I'm happy to talk about uh, the fabric of space and time, intersections between architecture and literature. I'm an architect myself, so I come from an architectural perspective. And my take on the book uh, is a very architectural one, trying to establish this uh, dialogue between architecture and literature from the viewpoint point of the architect. So Shasi's book is an intensely rich exploration of the lived experiences by characters that were lodgers and tenants alongside the homes, the streets and the communities that were created by in Charles Dickens' novels. Dissecting Dickens' work through tenancy, Usasi studies how the leasing of real estate in exchange of money paid in periodic installments alongside the people it touched and the special configurations it brought into prominence gave Dickens a canvas to render London, the experiences of his characters and the relationships of one another. But she also argues that lodging lettings and the patterns of inhabitation it encouraged also fueled Dickens' imagination and helped to shape his fiction. Quote, rented space formed a powerful agent in narrative as an imaginative discourse encouraging metafictional thinking, end of quote. In this presentation, I take inspiration from Ushasi's notion of metafictional thinking, the generative opportunities offered by spatiality and sociability to a novelist. And I will attempt to expand this notion by looking at the generative opportunities found at the interaction of architecture with literature. As an architect and architectural educator, I have frequently looked at the architectural strategies used in fiction and the role of literary strategies in architecture. Fiction can make architects think more critically about the future realities they design and motivate people to claim the right to the imagination it can also activate people's collective imagination associated with shared buildings, spaces, and experiences. There are many interactive possibilities and parallels between the two media, some of which I cover later in great detail. But first, I would like to discuss the more general subject of the relationship between architecture and language. And it is only through this foundational perspective that the relationship of architecture and literature can be best understood. Architecture has both interactive and analogical relationship with language, and design building originates in a linguistic document, the design brief. In the case of public buildings dedicated to the organization of knowledge, such as libraries, museums, and art galleries, the classification of contents in space are pre preceded by classifications recorded in texts and reflecting the history of thought. 
The analogical relationship between the two media goes back to the 19th century and the idea that works of architecture should be read like books, narratives, or texts. Quatremer de Quincy likened historical monuments to libraries, public inscriptions for records of people. The idea came under strong criticism, however, in the 20th century, after modernism asserted that buildings were to be read as autonomous works. Yet, as architectural historian Adrian Forti explains, even if architecture is not a language, this does not lessen the value of language for understanding architecture. Architectural theorist Bill Hillier, for example, has made a productive analogy between the syntax of space and the syntactic and semantic structure of language. The characteristic spatial relationships that define the culture and inhabitation of space are similar to linguistic rules we think with. If the principles of spatial structure function similarly to those of ordinary language, what about narrative motifs or rules used in literary texts? Or what about buildings as social objects relying on social context and the ordered mechanism of language to organize cultural mechanisms and relations of power? So we'll explore these questions through the work of John Soane and Carlos Carpa. Separated by a century and a half, both architects have a strong relationship with history and context as inspirational resources. A recent competition organized by the curators of the Sons Museum in Lincoln's Fields, an area that incidentally provides the context for Dickens' Bleak House, asked participants to name their favorite object in the building. A winning entry drew attention to relationships intentionally created by the architect. The nymph by Richard Westmacott in the picture room recess overlooking and tempting Padre Giovanni in the Max Parlo, the Gothic lair in the basement. The fictitious monk was the satirical alter ego of John Stone. Visitors to the museum come across the nymph first in the picture room that we see here, when the hinged panels open, revealing the statue in the recess, presiding over the void that connects with the monk's parlor. The interface of the statue with the hermit takes its true meaning only later, when they look up from the monk's cell with the picture room panels open. The congruous encounter between the classical sensuality of the nymph and the Gothic melancholy of the monk is dramatized through the synchronous viewing of the two spaces and the sequence in which they are visited. For such an encounter or event, space-time manipulation is frequently found in literature, film, and drama. It communicates that life is not framed by rationality and predictability. Characteristically, the opening paragraph of 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez reads, many years later, as he faced the fire squad, Colonel Aureliano Buendia was to remember that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice. Pip reminiscing about his former experiences in Great Expectations is another example, although like in 100 Years of Solitude, the narrative fo follows a simple chronological structure to help the reader comprehend the complex events of the characters' lives. Known as prolipsis and analipsis, the motifs of flash forward and flash backward often structure a large part of a narrative. A well-known example of early literature is Homer's Odyssey, which begins in Mediares, when Odysseus, having escaped from Calypso's island and her amorous advances, is shipwrecked among the Phaeacians and tells his tale. The story moves backwards in time, and as the hero narrates his many adventures, and only book 13 does the text return where we were in book 8, as he sets sail for Ithaca. In the Sons Museum, rooms sequence from the front to the rear of the building and back, while diagonal vistas reveal distant parts of the interior. 
Circumnavigational time, the time it takes to walk through the circuit, is in this way just opposed with synchronic time, where rooms and objects are instantaneously linked by cross views. The reading of architectural prolipsis and analysis suggests an analogical relationship of architecture with literary language. The interactive relationship defines a building and its meaning in a real world context. Exhibiting a large collection of historical objects and building fragments, Son's museum has history at its thematic cultural context. Son's view of history, however, is, according to him, fanciful, smitten with love of novelty, inanimated by direct defiance of all established rules of the architectural schools." End of quote. Domes, colonnades, crypts, vaults, skylights, recesses, niches, and anterooms treat history as a pantheon of forms and a repository of combinations. Like the interplay of space and time, for the neoclassical architect is an interchange of past and present that is both sequential and synchronic. From the Georgian front rooms to the back areas in the basement, with the classical Roman and Egyptian displays, the museum thematizes history as an imaginative, abounded, and directly accessible, supra-historical world, freed from the constraints of historical, stylistic, and museological knowledge. Interestingly, Dickens' reading of London, such as in Todger's neighborhood in Martin Chuzzlewit, through lanes and byways and courtyards and passages, is one when, quote, you never once emerged about anything that might be reasonably called a street. Like his description of Venice in pictures from Italy, his account of Todger's resists the taxonomic and systematic interpretive framework of language in museums, uh, catalogues or guidebooks offering an impressionistic aesthetic that confuses the city with the idea of the labyrinth, a dream with reality. Carlos Capa's relationship with Venice and history is also based on the notion that the past, present, and future are malleable. In the Olivetti showroom in the Piazza San Marco, Scarpa's inspiration from the linear vertical slicing of space, the narrow walkways in the mezzanine, the sculptural staircase, the water in the central zone, the glass mosaics, and all take inspiration from the great catalog of forms that is Venice, with its narrow passages, fundamenta, sort of porticos, bridges stretching over the water, water flooding the edges of space, the range of colorful materials and the rich surface decorations. By extending circumnavigational time through twists and turns of circulation, Scarpa contrasts the synchronic views from the front and back ends of the showroom with the sinuous progress of the viewer through the interior. There are many similar views in Venice extending over the linear stretches of the canals to link places that are reached only indirectly by the meandering and intersecting canals and alleys. Staging's movement through a long sequence is the device frequently used Scarpa, even when spaces are not linearly shaped, as in his extension to Canova's museum in Posano, where the varied positioning of statues of different size and height requires the visitors to walk around them, crossing their own paths multiple times. There's another linguistic motif that Scarpa uses, which is misambi, which means placing a copy of an image or object inside itself, like the snow globe in Orson Welles' Citizen Kane, metonymically referring to the clerestory windows at the corners of the tall space in the Canoviana extension, the glass cabinets containing figurines function as mini galleries inside the larger gallery, linking the scale of the building as a whole to that of the windows and displays. Mizambim has a strong presence in Seoul's museum too. The vault sale in the breakfast room, the cork models of Pompeii and Joseph Gandhi's paintings of the museum are demonstrations of Sean's desire to embed his own architecture into the historical ancestry. 
Thomas Marcus and Deborah Cameron explain that language is a neglected subject in discussions of architecture conventionally approached as a visual rather than verbal statement. Any social practice like architecture has both verbal and aesthetic dimensions. While the syntax of space structures social relationships, these relationships, their meaningfulness and the sub subtending relations of power are also a function of the ordering systems of language. These operate in the interactive production of the architectural brief, as well as of the drawings and conventions that enable exchanges between architects, clients, contractors, and builders. As to the aesthetic function of the linguistic analogy, any epic or myth, from the Odyssey to a child's journey to adulthood, demonstrates the age-old relationship between space and language, a symbolic media that interlays in imbuing our experience of buildings with narrative sense. This is perhaps what Stone aimed to demonstrate in his house museum through the union of architecture with poetry and the arts, through the intersections of architecture that display in the powerful illusions constructed by the many mirrors. Thank you. I will now pass to Jeremy. Jeremy, you need to unmute yourself as well, please. There we go. Thank you. Am I unmuted? Good. Uh, yes, uh, the, the very, very interesting to bring together that language of architecture with the uh, language of, of, uh, of, of narrative. Um, I, I think, for example, what you say about the crypt, uh, what you say about the, um, the attic and the labyrinth, the, these are all in, in very fertile images for 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 Dickens, for architectural theory and for for critical theory as well. Um, I, I, can we start with you, Ashashi? Do you want to come back on anything we've been saying? Um, thank you both so much for such rich and fascinating responses to the book. I wish we had about four hours to to, to talk together about about this material. Um, it seems like this relationship between architecture, space, and narrative and language, um, on the other hand, seems to be. Um, a topic we've all been circling in various ways, um, both today and and more broadly. Um, Jeremy, just on the on the phrase to let, um, I feel that another kind of definition of that phrase Dickens uh, is really receptive to is the is the fact that it also means to allow. Um, something that really comes up um, in Great Expectations, where Pip sort of comes into London for the first time and sees all of these signs that say, to let, to let, to let. And it, and it kind of really worries him. He feels that he's been given license to do something, um, you know, now that he's kind of come into his inheritance, but doesn't really know what to do with that permission. So that's the third definition that I found so interesting. Um, and Sophia, this, this, this relationship between, between architecture and, and narrative, Jeremy, you referred to Dickens' own kind of desire to kind of be an architect and to orchestrate kind of domestic space and, and all of those stories in various ways. Um, I think that's why he loves rented space so much. Um, he thinks that it's particularly fertile um, for maybe two reasons. Um, firstly, because when tenants come and go, they invariably bring new stories with them. And so narrative is refreshing itself constantly and infinitely over time in the same, maybe not particularly um, exciting architectural location. Um, and the other thing is of course, that because um, you know, with rented space comes atomization. Um, and so there's always um, 
various stories jostling for attention in close proximity with each other. Um, and he thinks, you know, I think he's very, very excited by the fact that there might be another story just on the other set of a door, so on the other side of a door, or, you know, on the other side of a set of floorboards. So those are just a few sort of initial responses um, to maybe where the intersections between our areas of interest might be. And I don't know if either of you had any, any further perspectives on that. Uh, can I? Please, please. Uh, I thought that this is a wonderful idea, Sashi, and that's what, what I really loved in the book. Uh, the book is so rich that, as you said, we can spend not four hours, but 40 hours talking about it. Uh, but this is a really wonderful idea that uh, people are cramped together in spaces, and these people come together with their own stories. And the ways in which the building really arranges the encounters, either through the spaces or through the economic transactions and everything else that is happening socially, culturally, and economically, is really creating a very rich world of opportunity for new narratives, for new stories. In a way, I think that you discussed this in the introduction, referring to Deserteau. Uh, it is, um, um, Michel Foucault gave this kind of disciplinary view of architecture in the 19th century through his model, the Panopticon. But Deserteau uh, really discusses the ways in which people can transgress any kind of uh, impositions uh, imposed from society on them simply by uh, rehearsing their own uh, roots and their own modes of interacting with each other. And I think that the, in your book, you really make the point so clearly manifested in the work of um, um, Dickens. It's just so fascinating, isn't it, to think that the kind of the John Stone Museum is just you know, a stone's throw away from so many neighborhoods that Dickens is exploring, not only in Bleak House, kind of throughout his career. So that sense of kind of proximity, um, kind of there we are, a case in point. Um, Jeremy? Well, yeah, sure. Of course, the, the Stone Museum is Lincoln's Inn Fields, just, mm -hmm. just uh, right angles to where Tulkinghorn lives uh, and dies, of course. Uh, and, and, the point about death made me think about another form of lodging. Uh, I referred earlier on to the to the grave in Hamlet, saying the, uh, talking about um, the, uh, the, the the coffin and, and the grave uh, as places you rent <laughs> until doomsday. Um, and the point, of course, that is that nobody occupies space forever. Uh, and uh, there are no, there, there aren't, in that case, there's nobody who's outside the lodging world in that way. And if that's the case, it gives a whole sense of the, the, the power of the ghostly and the, the power of the unheimlich, the, 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 the sense of, of um, spaces which are, which have got multiple things taking place inside them. And I'm sure that Dickens's, uh, Dickens's texts are, are, are well aware of that, but it's always a sense of how things are being reascribed with value. Um, that, that there's a memory of what has been in, in, inside, inside the place. Uh, when, with Tulkinghorn, for example, the, the, the Baroque, uh, I've used that word before, and I'm fascinated by Dickens and the Baroque. The, the, the Baroque um, uh, uh, ceiling, which looks down upon Tulkinghorn, uh, uh, and which Fizz shows ultimately with 
the with, with the, the the Roman looking down and pointing at Tulkinghorn, but Tulkinghorn is no longer there. It's just the the stain on the floor uh, by his chair, as it were. The the inhabitant has gone. The tenant has gone. And then in in, in the next chapter, virtually, uh, uh, we have the uh, this extraordinary funeral of, of uh, Horn, which is based upon the funeral of the Duke of Wellington, where. It isn't people who've come to see the man being buried. It, they've sent their coaches. And so you've got these empty coaches, empty spaces, lodgings, if you like, without lodgers, uh, um, which have moved along to see the, 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 the person die. The way in which Dickens works that in terms of emptiness and, uh, 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 and what has been and what will be, uh, and the, the sense in which he, he, he uh, gives a sense of, of properties and peoples as, as uh, transferable, as it were, is, is very interesting to me. So interesting because I, I think he's so receptive to this to this metaphor. Um, he uses it everywhere. He I think refers to the great lodging house. No, um, I misremember the great boarding house, the world, in a very very early story. Um, so he's constantly kind of looking at the metaphorical potential um, of the space and saying that actually we're only just ever lodging. We're only just ever passing through. Mm -hmm. um, this sense of history. Um, also, I think is is absolutely key uh, to what he's trying to argue about about any space, but especially rented ones. Um, that there's something ghostly about any uh, rented room. Um, there's always kind of a whisper um, from the person who inhabited before the person who inhabited before them, and um, you know, going on for 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 however long. Um, so that, that seems to be a central concern for his. And, and Sophia, I'm just interested in that, 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 relationship, that relationship between architecture and history. I guess architecture is, is meant not to, almost meant not to change, it's meant to endure. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, this was very much the view uh, in the 19th century and uh, mm -hmm. all the way up to the middle of the 20th century, but uh, uh, particularly after the war, we have new thinking coming that had to do a lot with uh, temporariness in architecture, uh, really bringing along thinking that had to do with uh, uh, people, how people use spaces and how people change spaces, how they adapt them, how they come into contact with each other, what the users want and how the users really interact with the space. So there was this incredibly creative British architect called Cendric Price that was creating a whole new school around uh, this notion alongside a group of architects called Archigram. Um, and um, it is bringing a, a completely different idea about architecture uh, in comparison to the monumental, the long lasting, um, the sort of pyramids of Egypt, Egypt or the Parthenon approach to architecture, which is about the tangent, the changing, the changing nature of architecture and the boarding house is very, very crucial in that because it is a probabilistic mechanism of mixing because people come and stay for a certain period. Maybe they stay for a longer period, but then they move on. And that moving really shifts and reshuffles society. And uh, um, uh, Dickens really capitalizes on that. Wes, I think you wanted to say something, am I right? Um, yeah, I just thought I'd come in and, and bring some of the questions that are in the, both in the, the, the chat function and also in the Q&A bit, um, but largely because they they carry on, if you like, the discussion that you're already having um, around 
well, around time, around different uses of space and so on. And um, there's a question, first of all, um, uh, from Alison, I think, um, which asks uh, or wonders how difficult it is for us now to think historically of a society where renting and not house buying is the norm. In other words, are we starting from a position where we think that the best thing possible is to have your own space, your own property, your own house, et cetera, et cetera. And that might not be where people in Dickens' time are starting from. Um, uh, well, let's, let's just have a minute or two on that question and your thoughts on that, Ushoshi. I can see you nodding your head here. <laughs> no, thank you so much, Alison. Um, so this idea that the Englishman's home is his castle. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's very much bandied about in the 19th century, but only insofar as that it's an ideal um, and that no one actually thinks that this is a description of the reality or indeed maybe something that we should be aspiring towards. I think this idea of homeownership has is actually quite a recent one. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe people might be able to correct me, people who know more about kind of the history of the, the 20th century, but I'm guessing 70s, 80s is when that really takes hold. And what, I think what we're noticing now is that we're returning to the idea that we're going to rent for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. um, and so kind of we're going back to the 19th century in a certain way. Um, but I think, um, I think the Victorians were aware of the, um, what renting might imply for their kind of desire for security or privacy, but didn't really have any particular kind of expectations that this was going to define the way that they lived in their own lifetimes. I hope that starts to answer the question. Um, Sophia, Jeremy, I'm sure that you have, you have thoughts on this as well. Well, I, I was looking at a website about the number of Americans who sleep in their own cars. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I was wondering what the statistics would be actually for how many people do have home ownership even, even now. And as you say, we're, we're in a new situation. Uh, I, I wonder if I might build on that idea of people sleeping in their cars to ask um, Sally Shuttleworth's question, which is to what degree um, is letting space, domestic space that's being repurposed um, as opposed to, which is part of Alison's question, space that's being built in order to let. Um, have you thoughts on, on the, the difference, if you like, between a repurposing and a kind of purpose building speculation that, 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 that this will eventually, yeah, it's meant for this kind of habitation? Uh, yeah, so there is a bit of both, um, I think, in, in the 19th century. So uh, Jeremy, Jeremy mentioned the model lodging houses that were mm -hmm. being kind of purpose built, um, private kind of philanthropic enterprises to kind of, um, I don't know, deal with the, the problems with poor housing. And so on the one hand, those are, those are specifically made to let for very specific reasons and for specific inhabitants. Um, but also, you know, so much of lodging was about kind of, you, you know, finding a room over a, over a, a shop um, mm -hmm. or dividing up a much broader house um, for particular purposes. So, so I would say it was a little bit of both. It's, it's both makeshift um, and purpose-built at the same time. I mean, I think it just shows how, how plural the concept is and how we can't necessarily come to any particular generalizations or definitions either way. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Sophie. You're nodding your head vigorously here. Do you want to <laughs> say more about this? 
Uh, I think that we are experiencing now a period where a lot of repurposing is going to take place uh, because of the changes that COVID brought to mm -hmm. the world of the office um, and also uh, legislation that allows transformation of uh, buildings that were designed for one purpose to homes. Uh, uh, just briefly, um, uh, the changes that took place in the 20th century um, with legislation and with uh, policy uh, were intended to create a specific society that owned the homes. So in the 60s, there was the Thomas Parker report, uh, which was commissioned by the government to uh, create some guidelines about the ideal design of social housing. Um, unfortunately, that uh, brought, came to a demise and then there was the financialization and the, the new legislation that um, um, stopped social housing. Uh, so people started buying their homes, but now definitely we are going into models of co-living, co-working and so on and cramped accommodation. Thank you. So the most recent question that just come in is said from Rebecca H. You're sort of answering this now, um, uh, but could anyone comment on today's rentier culture? So um, and in, in particular in relation to racism and space. So David Olasuga says a house through time had to move when his family was targeted by the National Front. He immigrated to, to Gateshead from Nigeria and the inequalities of space in, in, and effectively just in terms of what Sophia's just been talking about, the disease, the pandemic, pestilence, the kind of, if you like, the racialized distribution of, of what it means to be at home at any given moment. Um, I don't know, I confess I haven't read your book yet, so I don't know if it's part of the book. Uh, um, I, I wasn't sent a copy yet, so, but I will, clearly I will do. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, is that, is, is that part of Dickens' story or is it something we learn from Dickens when we think about today? Um. There are so many ways in which to approach that question, and I suppose the first is to refer to the current the current moment, which is where I think that the question is based. Um, mm -hmm. they, yes, I think we're kind of really beginning to see how spatial justice and spatial injustice um, work um, in very very profound ways. Um, in in terms of kind of what what Dickens has to tell us about this, um, he is interested in immigration. To a certain extent, so that the book has a chapter about the Great Exhibition, um, mm -hmm. which was very much a kind of um, yeah, offering an official narrative of British imperial power um, and saying, "Welcome, come and see how great we are," but also bring your own kind of um, objects and things to, to to celebrate, and we can come together. But at the same time, he's interested in what happens to to boarding houses and lodging lodging houses in the same year. Um, and what happens when kind of people from different nations um, and of different races come together in these less um, monitored locations. Um, and he, he has quite a lot to say about that. Um, Sophia, Jeremy, uh, I don't know whether you want to want to come, on, come in on this. Well, I was thinking about Mr. Caspi, of course, yeah. as the perfect example, the little Dorrit of the, the kind of rentier figure that uh, whom Dickens despises uh, and quite rightly too and who has of course Mr Panks as his uh, as, as the go the necessary go-between and Panks turns back on him and the treatment of bleeding bleeding heart yard I think is is very powerful and of course there's an Italian living in in uh, bleeding heart yards as well um, Mr um, um, Signor Cavalletto uh, but I mean it, it it's um that, that's a, an obvious part of the, and you actually discussed Caspi. We're going to have, sorry, go for it, Sophia. 
uh, very quickly, Thomas Booth's, um, Charles Booth, sorry, uh, Maps of London, where he mapped uh, the different social classes and uh, the um, um, East End, the Jewish community in East End, is perhaps an interesting reference in relation to this question. Um, Alison's put exactly that reference into the chat into the chat box, in fact. Um, so that's great. Um, two quick more things, really. One's right. That actually, the first question that came in. Um, was from David Possels about David Englander's research into landlord-tenant relationships. Does anybody here know anything about that? Was Dickens familiar with the legislation noted by Englander? Um, could I have a little bit more detail? I'm uh, afraid it's not something that I have put a lot of thought into. Okay. David, I'm afraid we've drawn a blank on that one, but that's exciting. Jeremy, that Jeremy, that... I mean, Jeremy, could you come in on that? Jeremy, do you know? No, I, I can't, but I would love to have the reference. Okay, in that case, David, can you send us the reference, please, and we'll take it up. That leaves us one one or two minutes to think again about the last uh, question from Nitu Singh, which is, uh, thanks all for your insightful uh, conversation. How do contrapuntal readings offer an insight into an understanding the absence and presence of imperialism in these homes? Again, Oshashi, you're nodding, you understand what that means. If you uh, give yeah. us a minute or two on that. Um, so contrapuntal reading is where, um, kind of canonical 19th century novels, um, which seem to be very much based in the workings of the nation, um, register the presence of, of, you know, what's going on on the other side of the world, yeah. um, usually kind of colonial relations. So the most uh, seminal reading of that is probably Edward Said's chapter on Mansfield Park, um, yeah. just for the, for the audience to, to, to situate the question. Um, I think absolutely yes. I mean, this is, uh, you know, Dickens is really interested in um, what's happening in other other parts of the world. Um, for example, you mentioned the um, the Great Exhibition chapter where he kind of registers these stories of political exile um, in uh, continental Europe um, in these novels that are meant to be very, very much about what's going on in London at the time. So a place like Leicester Square in particular is highly cosmopolitan. Um, and that's because of what's happening just off the edges of the page, um, you know, on the in the continent. And I, I hope, Nishi, that's starting to answer that question. But again, Jeremy and Sophia, you might have some thoughts. Well, I find it very interesting in Little Dorrit that the mm -hmm. whole question of uh, Arthur Clennam coming back yeah, from from China, Guangzhou, yeah. and uh, and the historically prisoner's conditions he would have been in there because the the space allowed to the Europeans was was tiny mm -hmm. uh, and um, marshalsea like actually, and and uh, it, it, of course it links to the question: of what was Arthur Clennam doing out in China, and what why was he so guilty? Uh, and uh, obviously, there's a relationship between opium. Uh, which Dickens is very alive to, and it's there, of course, with Nemo's death, and, uh, and continues into our mutual friend, where, where veneering is certainly a drug dealer. Uh, and I, I obviously, I think those connections are very, very subtle. And, uh, and uh, in the case of Little Dorrit, I think they account for a lot of the guilt that's in the in the novel. That you can't speak about your past because your past actually is so compromised politically uh, and, and economically. No, that's absolutely right. And Little Dorrit, of course, begins with a return um, to Marseille. There's a there's a, a quarantine situation um, because of the unnamed plague um, from 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 the east, uh, as, as as Dickens describes it. So so mm -hmm. I, I think that's definitely kind of you know very very open to contrapuntal reading. Yes. Thank you. Um, Ushashi suggested this might take four hours. 
Sophia said it would like take at least 40. I think we could be here for, for, for four days or 40 nights. Um, some, uh, uh, you know, a biblical time. It's been amazing and really, really interesting. We have the reference from David. Thank you in the chat now to um, uh, David Englander's, uh, uh, I keep speaking as if it were a German name, Englander, um, uh, if anybody wants to pick it up. Um, all it leaves me, people need to go by too. So I will just thank everyone enormously uh, Jeremy, Sophia, and most of all, Shashi, for writing the book in the first place, um, for what's been a really, really interesting um, discussion. Thank you all, everyone uh, present, for uh, coming along. Um, and I'll remind you to look, please, again, at the website, I Torch, for, for our next um, book at lunchtime. Um, it's people like yourselves who make this worthwhile. So thank you enormously, um, and see you again in a couple of weeks. Goodbye. <laughs>